All right. Well, you know how many days it is until uh, Christmas? Who can tell me? 19 days. My guess is, as soon as someone realized that this morning, as I asked the question and somebody gave answer to it, pretty much everybody, at least if your parents, your heart rate started to rise. Your blood pressure rose. 19 days to Christmas. Because you see, there's always more to do than there is time to do it as our kids head away. There's always more time, there's always more to do than there is time to do it, and Christmas always seems to be such an incredible rush, such an incredible busyness. Here's another question I have for you, or a question I have. How are you going to be after Christmas, December 28, December 29, December 30th? How are you going to be? Like, I, I don't know about you, but my expectation is I'm going to be whipped. I'm, I'm going to be tired, you know, it's, it, it's like... And, and it's like that you run a marathon and you hit the tape and you're done. And it might be a little bit because I'm a pastor and a lot goes on in a church around Christmas, as you can imagine. But I don't think that I'm that different from a lot of people. Christmas is, is busy. It's wonderful. It's good. But it's busy and it's tiring. And, and I want to ask the question this morning and over the next couple of weeks, how can we position ourselves to both understand what God did in Christ in Bethlehem and allow that to have the best impact on our lives that is possible. Understand what God did in Bethlehem. And allow that to have the greatest and best impact in our lives that it can have. Now what we want to do today is go back to the, to, to the book of Daniel. This is, if you would, the end of the exile series and the beginning of the Christmas series. It's a crossover sermon, okay? I wasn't actually going to be calling it that until I really get into it. And I realized, yeah, it's, it's still exile stuff. But it's also Christmas stuff par excellence. We're going to go back to Daniel. We're going to look at a, a prophetic passage in Daniel, um, which we haven't done particularly yet. Daniel is a, an a, a, a apocaly apocalyptic literature. It's, it's odd. It's different. It's filled with symbols that we don't often understand. But it, it's written and it's packed with powerful truths to help us really grapple with the realities of, of this life and of this faith. And apocalyptic literature is intended primarily to get us to be encouraged and, and, and to cause us to be faithful in the midst of struggle and heartache while we live in exile, as Daniel was in his day. You'll remember the three sermons that have been preached. Well, there actually there are four, but Daniel chapter 1, he was supposed to eat the food the king gave him, and he took a huge risk in saying no. Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego you know, will you bow to the idol or will you be thrown into the fire? And they were. Uh, Daniel chapter 6, you know, Daniel in the lion's den. He prayed to God and not to the king. And, you know, his life could have been forfeited without the intervention of God. These people are struggling in exile. Uh, they're surrounded by a culture that is not supportive of, of their faith. Uh, they have a different faith, different value systems and so forth. And over these weeks, we've talked about how that can be hard. And that ultimately we're called to faithfulness. Well, I'm going to read this passage that sort of settles uh, in, in the midst of this context. Daniel 7 is uh, a dream which Daniel has. Before I read it to you, because it's odd, um, I'm going to just describe what happens. He has, a, he has a dream, and in his dream, he sees four animals. Now, they're odd, but they, and they have parts to their bodies that don't seem to make sense to us, but essentially, there is the lion... There is a, a bear, there is a leopard, and then there is one called the beast. And what these four animals represent, essentially, and I'm telling you before I read it so you have a bit of a sense of what this 
seemingly nonsensical stuff actually does mean. What they represent are the four empires that Daniel was either living with or uh, foreseeing in a prophetic fashion. So uh, the first one is, is the lion. Well, that's Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire, and he's in that moment in this time, and he's saying, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the, he's the lion. He's the greatest. But after him will come a bear. Well, that's the Persian Empire under King Darius. You know, later in Daniel's life, that, had, that transition had happened. And after that would come uh, the leopard, and that is the Greco-Macedonian Empire, uh, the Greek Empire, which was established by Alexander the Great, who essentially created a world-dominating power. And after that, of course, would come Rome, <clears throat> the beast. And uh, they, that empire would be ruled by various Caesars, as you probably know. Just by way of interesting comment, if you want to go back and read Daniel chapter 2, he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and it's about a statue with four sections. And it's the same thing. It's representing these four empires which were present or which would come. It's a prophetic action of God enabling Daniel to see what was ahead. And essentially, these realms, these powers which would rule for a long, long time uh, were realms which were being ruled in defiance of God. They were living in rebellion against God. They were cruel and they were violent, especially the last one as we'll read about. And uh, God's got a plan for world history. And I'll read this to you now. So Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to uh, 7. In the first year of... Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and, and, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each from different from the other, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion. It had wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat, your, and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. On its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. The beast had four heads. It was given authority to rule. Notice it was given authority by whom? By whom? It was given authority by God. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. That's Rome, the worst, the most violent, the most powerful. What we're going to see here is that Daniel introduces then in this passage, in this dream, what he sees is the setting up of a courtroom scene. And God, the Father, he's referenced here as the Ancient of Days. If you heard God called the Ancient of Days, this is where it flows from. The Ancient One, the Eternal One, God the Father Almighty, he comes and he sits on the throne and he is prepared to judge and he takes action. And what I'm going to do is read through this, these, these next verses. I want us to gain some understanding of what is being said through this odd means of communication, this apocalyptic literature. And then I want to tie it all into Christmas. So here we go. I'm going to read, first of all, uh, verses 9 and 10, the, the courtroom scene. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. 
His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. It's time for judgment. Now, you might look at that and say, hey, that kind of reminds me of another book of the Bible. Anybody think of Revelation? Uh, Revelation, another apocalyptic book. They share the symbolism at times. So here is the courtroom scene. God is set up as, as, as all-powerful, and he is going to pronounce judgment. Let's, let's continue to read verses 11 and 12. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. That's in reference to the beast Rome. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. Now this is interesting. Just, just take a minute with this. What's being said here, what, what we're, what's being described here is that God is the almighty sovereign power of the universe. These, these realms, these empires might seem powerful and particularly Rome but here it is God who destroys the beast, Rome. He overpowers the power of this incredible and destructive uh, and rebellious empires. And then what he does is come along and, and it says that the other beasts were stripped of their authority. By whom? By God. With a snap of his fingers. And, and, and they're allowed to carry on. So you have a Babylonian empire and a Persian empire and you have a... Um, uh, a Greek empire, but they're not empires anymore. They exist, but they're existing in weakness. But God has even allowed them to continue to exist. You see what's being said of God? God is in charge. God, God is far more powerful than any of these kings that are, have been described. Um, it might seem while they're reigning that, you know, each in their term that they are powerful. And if you were living in exile under the rule of one of these, you would think, oh my goodness, they are the ultimate power of the universe. This text comes along and he says, it says to the people of God, no, they're not. They are temporary and they will reign only with the permission of God Almighty. God is the King of Kings. God is the Almighty One. And what is happening here is that it's being suggested to us, I mean, it's being prophesied by the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit that God has a plan for world, world history and it is he who determines it and it is he who chooses which empire will reign for how long. And when it's time for them to end, he ends it because he is God. Well, then comes a couple more verses, verses 13 and 14. Let me read to you. And here's where we turn to something maybe a little more Christmassy and familiar. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed there would be one the text is telling us Daniel's dream is telling us the spirit of God is inspiring him to tell us who would come called the son of man now he would come and he would be divine because as the text says he he came uh, with the clouds of heaven it's clear that he's coming from heaven it's clear that he's a divine being he's God in human form Come directly, God come into our world to intervene in our time and in our space to save his people. You understand this? Do you hear this? 
Those particularly who are in exile need to know it. Yet not only is he divine, he is the son of man. He is a human being. He is one of us. He, he identifies himself with humanity. He comes to join us in order to save us. But most importantly, he would be a man who, unlike us, was perfect, right? Because he was God. So that he could take to himself our penalty, our punishment, ultimately on a cross. You know who I'm talking about here now, don't you? It's Jesus. He would be the representation or the representative of all humanity, and, and, and he would suffer in our place and, and buy salvation, earn salvation for us. He would be given authority, glory, and sovereign power, the text says. Everyone in, in the world would bow. All nations and peoples would worship him. Paul would later say that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You hearing the, the connection between all of these texts and this, the, this, this belief pattern? And in the end of the day, he would have what is here called an everlasting dominion and a kingdom that would never be destroyed. My friends, this, this happens at the time of the Roman Empire and designation. It's describing Jesus. During the reign of Rome, Jesus come to establish another kingdom that would rule forever. Now, I want you to go from the book of Daniel, and I want you to fast forward almost 600 years. And I want to read to you a passage about an angel coming to a young woman named Mary. And I want you to see if you can hear any of the strains of chapter 7 in Daniel with what you're about to hear. We're going to read from 28 to 35. Famous passage. The angel went to her, Mary, and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary, asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One um, to be born to you will be called the Son of God. The Son of God. Do you hear this? <laughs> Here was one who would be the son of a human woman, and the son of God by the agency of the Holy Spirit divine and human being. Here is one who would sit on a throne and whose kingdom would never end. This is the Son of Man that Daniel was talking about and that others spoke of. Jesus would grow up and he would take this title, Son of Man, to himself numerous times. You know, 30 times in the book of Matthew alone. But let me read through some of these for you just quickly. Matthew 20, verse 28 says this. Jesus speaking, just as the Son of Man, referencing himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Who is Jesus calling the Son of Man? He's calling himself the Son of Man. Do you think he was aware of what Daniel had written? Of course he was. He's saying, I'm he. I've arrived. I have come. The divine human one come to save. The all-powerful one. The one who has all authority. 
going ahead, I, I'm studying in, in my own devotional life right now in John chapter 9. I've been reading this chapter most days for the last two weeks, just soaking in. It's a rich passage and the, the meaning of it all. Anyway, just before I read the text, um, the story is the story of the man born blind. And I hope you know we're him, right? We're all born blind. We can't see the things of the Spirit, until Jesus touches our eyes and opens our eyes so that we might see. And while the healing is about a physical healing, the story is primarily about spiritual healing so that we can come to see and believe in Jesus. All right? So Jesus heals the man. After the healing, there's this controversy that goes back and forth about who is this one named Jesus? Who is he? People say he's a prophet. Others call him a sinner. The Pharisees called him a sinner, right? It was, it was bizarre. There's, there's God in their presence. There he, there he is, the eternal one who's finally come. And they can't see. They're blind. They're blind. And they call God a sinner. Well, afterwards, after this controversy, Jesus finds this man who had been born blind. And we're going to read verses 35 to 37. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out of the synagogue. He was out of the fellowship of the Jewish people. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. Note the word. You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Are you, are you beginning to get how directly Jesus identified himself? with his Old Testament prophetic concept, the Son of Man. He's saying, it's me. I'm here. I'm it. You know, tack onto that Matthew 28, verse 20, when, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he began it by saying, then Jesus came into the, to them and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to whom? To me. Just like all authority and glory and sovereign power was given to the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. Let's go forward, Luke chapter 21, verse 27. And Jesus is speaking of a, a time that is yet before us. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That's speaking of a day Christ will return, the second coming of Christ. And any rebellion, any, any um, uh, resistance to the will and the rule of God will end when he comes with glory and with power. The Son of Man will come. In that way. And then I want to read to you 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and 25. This is Paul, the, one of the apostles, reflecting back in the life of Jesus. But listen to this. Then the end will come, the end of time, the end of human history, when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. You see, the message is the same as Daniel. Empires will rise and they will fall, but in the end, one will come whose name is Jesus. We know now the Son of Man who will overcome all human resistance to God, all rebellion against God, and he will bring peace, and he will bring joy, even though our candle's not lit. And I'm telling you, my friends, it's going to be an awesome, awesome day. See, if you, if, if you think about the prophecy of Daniel... And if you connect it to what Jesus is saying, he's simply just saying as clearly as those Jewish people um, could have understood. It's just, it was a blatant statement that he made of himself. I'm the, I'm the human divine one. I'm the one Daniel spoke of 600 years ago. I'm here, and it's now, and a new kingdom has come, and I will reign this kingdom forever. And a day will come when I will return in glory and power, and I will end it all 
and human history will end as we know it. See, Jesus is positioning himself as God. <laughs> you know, he, he is saying there will come a day when this defiance of God by human power and politics will be no more and his kingdom will be established. And it will be an absolutely incredible thing. Now, what does all this mean for us? We who are in Advent, we who are anticipating, again, celebrating the coming of Jesus on December 25th, 19 days from today. What does this mean? I'm going to start with something that maybe is a little lighter, but I think it's important to say. As you celebrate Christmas this year, whether you're on your own or whether you're with family, especially if you have little kids, do not allow Christmas to be about Santa Claus. Now, Santa Claus has his place. Enjoy it, you know, and gifts have their place and so forth. But don't enjoy it to the extent of, ex of ex excluding Jesus. Don't enjoy Santa Claus to the point of, uh, uh, at the expense of exalting Jesus. This is about him. This is about one of the greatest moments in human history when God came to us from heaven. The almighty all the sovereign, all-powerful ruler of the world. Don't let it be about you. Don't let it be about your broader family or even your own nuclear family. These things are to be enjoyed, but my friends, allow this to be a celebration of God coming in Christ to redeem his world and to make all things right. It's an incredible moment in human history. Where will the emphasis be in your home? And more importantly, where will the emphasis be in your heart? Number two, what does this mean for us? This Daniel text and this Jesus embracing of the title Son of Man. Let this season be about, all about responding to Christ. Responding to him. I want to go back to John chapter 9, the story of the man born blind. We're going to read I'll start a little later than what I read before, and I'm going to read an extra verse. But it says this. Who is he, sir, the man asked, the man who had been given his sight. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Two responses of that man to Jesus revealing himself to the man as the son of man. And the first one was to believe. Faith. See, this man had been touched by Christ. He had encountered God. And having never seen for a day in his life, Jesus had healed him, opened his eyes, both physically and here spiritually, to understand who he was and to see him. And I want to tell you, my friends, if nothing else, this is a time for us to believe and to grapple with belief if we don't. You know, could it be that there are people here today who are watching from home who have not yet come to the place where they can say with absolute conviction, I recognize that Jesus was the Son of Man, that yes, he was human, but yes, he was fully divine. He was God in the flesh. Could I, could I invite you over this season, and you've got 19 days to do it, and then maybe more if you wish, but to, to make this a season considering the possibility that Jesus is who he said he was. Now think about the Daniel prophecy. How does that happen? 
How does it happen that 600 years prior, Daniel describes Jesus? And if that's not enough, I'm just going to throw this in here because it is absolutely cool and I wish you had time to speak it last week. Go back to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel, well, let me back up. Jesus said that all that the prophets wrote were about him. Do you remember that text? He says it a couple of times. Daniel is a type of Christ. He is a representation of the Jesus who would come. Now think about Daniel chapter 6, written centuries before Jesus. And I want you to think about him in this story of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel had enemies who wanted him dead. They couldn't find any reason for accusation against him, just like with Jesus. They cooked up a plot in order to have him killed, just like with Jesus. Both had a reluctant judge. Darius didn't want to throw Daniel under the lion's den. He fought it and he sought for a way to keep it from happening. Pilate didn't want to kill Jesus. He only did it to keep the peace. Both were thrown into, if you would, a tomb, a place of death. Both had a stone rolled in front of that tomb. Remember, Darius sealed it with the royal uh, ring and with the rings of the nobles. And both of these men survived death. They came through it. My friends, that's just some of Daniel 6. Go there, look at it. <laughs> and look at Daniel in other instances and all these various... Uh, the prophets and what they did. Listen, how could such an incredible parallel happen with the person of Christ 600 years prior to his birth if God wasn't in this? And I'm telling you, it was God who designed this, who inspired Daniel, chapter 6, <laughs> who came in the person of Jesus, the Son of Man, the divine human man. Will you consider if you don't believe? that Jesus indeed was who he said he was, and more than that is who he said he was, the living Son of God. Well, belief was the response of the man, but also the response of the man was one of worship. Worship, same as in Daniel chapter 7. All the nations says will worship Jesus. Um, I want to suggest to you that there is an intimate connection between believing in Jesus and worshiping him. Um, it's not necessarily just an intellectual belief. Oh, yeah, I believe Jesus is the Son of God and he rose from the dead. And, like tons of people believe that stuff mentally. The Bible goes deeper than that mental ascent when it talks about faith and belief that's saving. It's a belief that goes to the core of your being and transforms your life. And I want to tell you, when you come to believe in Jesus as the Son of Man, when you come to believe that he is this sovereign God come into this world to save us, when you come to believe that all authority and power has been given to him, when you believe that he's going to come again in the clouds with gl in glory and in power, when you recognize that he's not just a, a human being, but that he is God in the flesh, there is one response that consistently is given to us in Scripture, and that is, the, that, is, that is the response of worship. And this man worshiped Jesus when he came to realize, I'm standing in the presence of God. The divine one. Now I want to tell you, my friends, <clears throat> what does that mean when we come to worship Jesus? It, it means that we give him honor. We elevate him. We worship him in our minds. We do this on a Sunday morning. 
right? We recognize him. We sing about him. I'm doing it right now. I'm speaking this to you that you might, that Jesus might be lifted high. We honor him deeply. We give him first place in our lives. First place, not last. He, he is the one we serve. We live for this one named Jesus and nothing else. We give ourselves with passion to the kingdom's building that he established 2,000 years ago, then he will bring to completion when he returns. It becomes the focus of our lives. You see, when we recognize who Jesus is, we give our lives to him. And there is nothing of greater importance to us than Jesus. Go back to the stories of Daniel that I've referenced over this month past. Think about Daniel in chapter 1 when the king says, I want you to eat this food. Can you understand now how absurd it would have been for Daniel to obey a mere king and to disobey the king of kings? And he wouldn't do it. Think of chapter 3 when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were asked to bow but before an idol made of gold. Just a bunch of carved metal, essentially. But how bizarre it would have been if they had agreed to bow before this idol rather than bowing before God and obeying him and honoring him through their obedience. Imagine how bizarre it would have been in Daniel chapter 6 when, when Darius, the king of the Persians, you know, the new empire that had risen up and taken over from the Babylonians, when, when Darius had come along and said to, to him, I want you to pray to me and no one else for 30 days, that was his, his edict. How bizarre it would have been if Daniel had started to pray to a, a, a simple mere man as opposed to obeying God and praying to God Almighty in heaven. It wouldn't have made any sense. It didn't make any sense to these people. And I want to tell you, my friends, it is no wonder that the wise men who came from the east, who came from the area of Babylon, people who most likely, scholars tell us, found out about the Messiah to come, the Son of Man who would come from Daniel when the, the people from Judah were exiled to that part of the world and took their scriptures with them. These wise men came looking for this one child. And it's no wonder that when they found that child believing in him as they did, that they worshipped him. They bowed before him, and they gave to him these extravagantly expensive gifts. They honored him as the Son of God. So here's my question for you in the end, my friends. Do you worship Jesus, or do you just believe in him? I'm, I'm, I'm playing with that word, believe. Because I've told you, if you really believe in him, you will worship him. But is it possible that people believe in Jesus intellectually, but their worship is lacking? It is. And what we are called to is the people of God, saved by the Son of Man, reconciled to God the Father through Jesus. We are called to enter into his presence and adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Christ the Lord. To elevate him above ourselves, to yield ourselves in his presence, to live a life for him, not for ourselves, to give ourselves to him in obedience and in faith. I want to tell you, that's what Christmas is all about when you recognize Jesus as the Son of Man. And then lastly, lastly is this idea that in a sense we continue to live under the rule of Rome. Uh, quotation marks, Rome. 
You know, this is a violent and cruel world. There are powers that seem overwhelming, which acknowledge nothing of God and His will. But I want to tell you, my friends, there is nothing that compares to the power and the authority of Jesus Christ in this world. Nothing. He is its ruler. He is the ultimate power of our world. And this is going to have a couple of impacts on us. Number one, this, this must and this needs to give us incredible hope. Hope. Because no matter how we might suffer in exile, as the culture runs away from God and dishonors God and we live in faithfulness to it, no matter how much harm that might bring into our lives, that's the theme of this series that concludes today. We know that Christ will come again and he will destroy all human power and he will reign and we will reign with him. Do you know that? Parallel passage in chapter 2. Go and look at it, but it talks about how the people of God will reign. It doesn't even distinguish us from Christ. We will reign with him. We know the one ultimately and we are called to live in faithfulness to him regardless. Secondly, um, uh, it's a restatement. Will you, my friends, live your life in worshipful, worshipful obedience to Jesus? That's easy for me to ask. I hope it's not easy for you to answer, unless you've already come to that place of that complete commitment of your life to Christ. But that is what we are called to. We don't live for ourselves. We don't live for any cause that is greater than the person of Christ, we live for Christ alone and we live in obedience to him. It's not about what we might think in, in, from a human perspective, it's about what God has revealed to us in scripture and we live according to the word of God faithfully before the Lord. And if I could throw this in, will you live a life as these men did and I've marched through the three stories we've looked at previously, but will you pray to him? Will you live an intimate relationship with Jesus? Do you know how absolutely remarkable it is that we, just little old Chris Little and little old you, <laughs> one, two, 200, I don't know what numbers here, it's not 200, it's 150 or something. Individual people who are simply part of a world of 7 billion now, and you go back millennia and all the billions and billions of people who have lived, and you can close your eyes and you can speak to the Son of Man and He hears you. And then He responds to you because He loves you. <laughs> That's amazing. It's an amazing thing. My friends, I began by saying basically, what is it that we need to do to understand what God did in Christ in Bethlehem so that we can most benefit from this season? Well, I hope you've heard. I challenge you with what you believe. Can you take a step forward with that? Can you pursue that? Can you come to conclusion with that? Secondly, if you believe, live your life as an act of worship before him. That's what it means to know and follow and love Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we just take a moment and say thank you that we can pray to you, that we have access to the ancient of days through the Son of Man. What an incredible blessing we have to be called your children, we who believe in you, Lord Jesus. 
Now, God, our prayer is that you will allow us to go from this place having studied a little bit of Daniel in, in a unique and distinct way. Um, and we can respond with our whole lives to you, you who have come, Jesus, to Bethlehem. Lord, I pray for people who may not quite be there in terms of faith and belief, but I pray, Lord, you'll enable them by your spirit to see, just as that man in John chapter 9 came to see because of the touch of Jesus. I pray, Lord Jesus, you'll touch those people and you'll open their eyes and you'll help them embrace faith fully. And Lord, for those of us who do believe, help us never, never to believe without worship. Move in our hearts, Lord God, that we might live our lives for you and for you alone. That we would worship you and you alone. That we would obey you and you alone. And that we would pray to you and you alone. God, do your work in us as we seek to be faithful to you. And we pray that this Christmas, Lord, as we inch our way toward it, will be an incredible season of faith and of, and of worship and of obedience. And one, ultimately, which is filled with joy because Christ has come. And this we pray in his name. Amen.